Warning: All of your heroes hid from authorities. Just all of them. Look it up. Check out their Wikipedia page. There's a section hid from authorities. Pretty much any hero you can think of. So it's just a fact. It's what heroes do. They run and they hide. We now go to the year 2069. Following a series of factional conflicts between the ruling class of North America, the political, cultural, and economic landscape has changed forever. There's a battle between two superpowers, the first of which is the Free Cascadian Republic, a nuclear-armed Northwestern territory that was founded in collaboration between socialists and nationalists, which was thought by both sides at the time to be necessary. Later, the socialists were purged first from public office and then from public life. The Free Cascadian Republic is now a pluralistic ethnostate, with a caste system that dictates one's social safety net. The other superpower, Texas Shipping and Trade Company, the ultimate legal authority from Central America to California. Scattered across North America are a series of small, regional city-states, with their own politics and culture. The city-state of Usufruct, which began as an ad hoc coalition of information archivists, blossomed into a fully functioning library socialist society. The society operates on the values of neighborliness, autonomy, friendship, meeting people's needs, and making life more wonderful for everyone governed through local neighborhood councils and workers' assemblies, which form coalitions and send delegates to higher levels of the councils, the Usufructians have generally favored nonviolent methods of conflict resolution, which has served them and their society until now. Delegate for East Usufruct, present. Delegate for West Usufruct, also pleasant. Present. Pleasant too, I That hope. too, yeah. <laughs> and the primary assembly is now in session. So, the Free Republic of Cascadia is approaching with an intent to invade and pillage our library city-state by the end of next week. The community assemblies of East Usufruct, a consensus has formed that when faced with the option to either flee or fight, running and hiding is the only ethical choice, and that running and hiding is the revolutionary choice that will best bring about our values, not just in a limited context, but one day in a larger context. As delegate from West Usufruct, our consensus position that the society we've built here, the active philosophy that walks the streets of our city every day is too precious to run away from and that we must take up arms, fight, and defend. Now, in the 26-year history of Usufruct, we've never destroyed any data. We've never let someone in need go without. And we've certainly never taken up arms. Simply having the right ideas doesn't mean that you will survive in society. You need to stand up when the time is right, be brave, and fight your enemies. We only have one week until the soldiers get here. We need to start getting guns into citizens' hands, blow the dust off all those war strategy books that nobody's touched for 26 years, and start learning. Now, it's a certainty at this point that there will be people fleeing the city, and it would go against our very principles to try to prevent them and enlist them to fight. But even if every individual in our society was to become miraculously trained within a week and to decide to stay and fight, the best information seems to show that we are hopelessly outnumbered. The Free Cascadian Republic aren't going to just let us rebuild somewhere else. For better or for worse, This is where we make our stand. This is the last line of defense we have against total obliteration. While your and your people's cowardice may cost us the future, I wish you luck. Delegate, we wish all of the luck and security in the world. We only wish that it was sufficient. And so the Yusufructian society split in Two, there was a massive public relations campaign using slogans like, if anyone stays in fight, I will stay in fight to protect them. Self-annihilation brings us closer to Godhead. The grand caravan that left before the attack 
carried just 26,000 people, leaving over 190,000 within the city walls to fight. We now go to the mountains. One week after the attack, the Grand Caravan is awaiting a scheduled phone call. Oh my god. I don't know how much longer we can keep the satellite link up. It wasn't a lot of solar today. It was agreed that they'd be calling us at 7.30. It's now 8.15. Maybe they're just busy. Maybe it's all okay. Maybe they won and they're celebrating. Maybe, yeah. Maybe the comm link's down, but it's all, it's all good. Yeah. But it's it's not. That's not what's happening, man. You don't know that. I think at 8.30 we have to turn off the comm link. And, oh my god. It's them. It's them. It's them. Do you want to answer? I'll answer. You I'll can get answer. it. You can get it. Neighbor, neighbor. Mayday, mayday. Yusufruct has fallen. Oh, we need no. to escape. They're going to come neighbor, back tomorrow. Neighbor, I need you to give the second half of the password. First half of the password is sharing is. Delegate, we have 5,000, 6,000 people here. We've suffered heavy losses. I How can we know reconnect that you're not with you? A blood nationalist. Sharing is what? Sharing the whole is command what? structure was wiped out. Sure, everyone who had this password has been killed. Can, can you ask around? Please, delegate, we don't have the password. Please, can please. Can you tell us the status of the library? Are the books okay? Everything that wasn't in deep storage has been destroyed. Oh, no, no. We're gonna die, man. You're gonna kill us. Oh. There's children here. There's delegate. children here with us too. And I can't risk giving our location away to the national. Please transfer the information, delegate. That's what I'm saying. The information must not be shared. The information must not be shared. I'm sorry, neighbor. You useless bureaucrat. You are a dog. You are casting to death. You're gonna kill us. You're gonna kill us. You're, ki you're killing these children. Oh, was that the battery ran out? Sort of merciful, actually. That was tough to listen to. I did the right thing, right? Oh, and especially yeah, the yeah, way yeah, he, for he sure. started yelling there at the end. That Maybe was it was a secret blood nationalist. I know. I really thought that it was legit. Like, I really thought that there's legitimately like thousands of people that are yeah. going to be killed by the. I mean, it seems unlikely that. Yeah there wouldn't be thousands of people currently being killed by them. Totally. But, I mean, if we had the rules are rules. I think you made the right choice. That must Even have been if there hard was a, for you. It's actually harder now in the aftermath, because in the moment I was kind of, like, digging my feet, like, Yeah, no. but now you're, like, reflecting on it, like, yeah. what it really means to turn those people away from yeah, exactly. safety. If, and if, like, but at the same time, there's real risks if they're followed, even if they're real. And those books. <sighs> well, nobody said we weren't playing for keeps. It's not a game. No, yeah, it's the real world. And they should have come. They should have come. We I told did, them. I, I encouraged them to come. I said, everyone who stays will all die. Little comfort now that I was right, and there's nobody to say I told you so to. I guess I could have slipped it into that call, but I feel like it would have been bad yeah, taste. Yeah, that would have been bad taste, yeah. But and I to mean, know that the reason that I had to endure that emotional turmoil was because they were too pig-headed in the first place mm -hmm. to just run and hide like a courageous adult. It's tough. That's tough stuff. Yeah, it's a tough historical lesson. If our society does survive future generations will know to do the brave thing to run away to hide from your enemies bide your time and figure out a solution rather than pointless conflicts and so all those that stayed to fight perished and while this escape ensured the survival of the usufructian culture their future is still uncertain oh. This is the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name's Sean. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Aaron. And um, we try to do an episode every week. This episode is about running and hiding. Running and hiding. Absolutely. It's a revolutionary act. As we all know, it's kind of a basic episode. Everyone knows that already. But a real bread and butter. Yeah. App. Yeah, it's like homelessness is bad. Running and hiding is revolutionary. It's just, you know, basics. So yeah, in our series of basics, this. And this episode is literally sponsored by our generous donors on Patreon and PayPal. They make us able to keep doing the show, and we have a lot of fun doing it. So thank you so much to our donors. And if you want to consider becoming one, it's just six bucks a month, uh, and you get access to our whole archive 
bonus episodes in our ongoing series on revolution. And you get to make us smile. Because every time I see a new donor in the email thing, it's a smile. It's not a bad price for making Aaron smile, honestly. Thank you. I'm glad you think so. So sit back, relax, and uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. When was the last time that you ran and hide? The last time I ran and hid? I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't remember. The most recent time I can remember running and hiding. It's sort of ambiguous whether I really hid or if I just ran so effectively I didn't need to hide. I got away. But anyways, a guy pulled a gun on me and tried to rob me in downtown Vancouver like four or five years ago. Shit. I think it was a fake gun, but... Still. I just ran away. (laughs) Yeah. I would run away too. <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't have any money. I told him before I ran, you'd have to get my pin number in order to effectively rob me. And that's staying up here, man. <laughs> well, I don't know if he had a real gun on me. I might give him my pin number. If he was like, no man, game theory, dude, I'll come with you to the bank. I'm going to keep this gun on you. Game theory says that if you don't give up the pin number and you have no money, he risks becoming a murderer for no reward. But yeah, anyway, so I ran away. And I think in that circumstance, I made the right choice. Yeah, I don't think you needed to stand your ground or call the conflict, be brave, stand up to the injustice of someone pulling a gun on you, which is an unjust thing to do. And injustices should be stood up to. But in that specific instance injustices can also be fled from yeah actually i remember uh, just another instance of a time that i just booked it yeah because i feared for my life i was going through a forest path in the suburbs of like the greater vancouver area coquitlam and i went around the corner in this wooded path which is like within the city limits but it's there's pretty decent chunks of forest there and there was two or three baby cubs of a bear and in the distance, a mother bear on her hind legs looking directly at me. And I was like Scary. Pr- pretty close to these babies. And I was thinking like maybe the mother bear might not like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I understand that you're not supposed to book it, I think. But I just did. I just booked it. And I turned out okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if babies are around, not that you should book it from bears, you're supposed to stand there and like look big. This is not a bear advice podcast. And so please look this up before you start. implementing the recommendations but if there's babies around then i think the mother is going to be more likely to not chase and to stay with the with the kids definitely want to check with a bear expert if you are going to be interacting with bears anytime soon all i can say is that i booked it and i'm glad i did and i don't feel like it was cowardly in a way that is bad (laughs) <laughs> like yeah, I don't think... like the good kind of cowardly. Yeah, or yeah, not the, cowardly. the righteous revolutionary form of cowardice. Right. It's not that it's not cowardice. It's that it's exactly the perfect cowardice. Yeah, d- the cowardice... saying that you should never be cowardly. It's like we have this whole cornucopia of human reactions and options and to just rule one of them out one that's actually as you've just demonstrated with two separate anecdotes extremely effective. I would say that it's a wonderful option that should sometimes be invoked. And also, though, I want to say that I don't think all running and hiding is necessarily cowardly. Like if you're in prison for a crime you didn't commit, say, or a crime you did commit, something that shouldn't be illegal, and you run from the jail and get far, far away and you hide somewhere and then maybe even flee the country... I wouldn't say that's a cowardly thing to do. Like, that was actually pretty brave to run and hide. I caught myself here having some contradictory thoughts around cowardice, so I just did a quick dictionary check. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for the weirdness here is that cowardly both means just a simple absence of bravery and at the same time means someone who has a contemptible timidity. Like, contemptible is... <laughs> part of the definition, yeah, Part for sure. of one of the definitions of cowardice. Right, like, right, right. Because it's used as an insult, right? Or, like, to sort of imply that you're unprincipled. But then right. there's also just the absence of bravery. And obviously, someone who's brave is someone who's courageous. That is, someone who's not deterred by danger or the threat of pain. But I think being deterred by danger and the threat of pain is totally valid. We have those internal deterrences for a reason. If you don't get deterred by pain, like people who don't feel pain, they physically can't feel pain. And so they don't notice when they're doing things that are hurting their body. They actually end up hurting themselves really bad a lot of the time. And they have to like be really, really careful and really mindful because they just don't know that they're... (laughs) 
really hurting themselves. So, but just just like withdrawal from pain and flight from pain, super like base instinctual human reactions that to pathologize them, it's a very strange thing to do. Yeah, and in fact, I think it can be quite revolutionary even as part of a true revolutionary movement toward building a new and perfect society. I think knowing when to hold them, when to fold them, and when to walk away is is just pure revolutionary spirit. Fighting a battle that you can't win and that's going to get your movement kind of quashed in its infancy is not doing the revolutionary movement of history any favors. You and all the people who have good ideas about a better society that you want to build being killed. I mean, potentially, that could be a catalyst to something good. But it's not just like an a priori good thing to always do. I find within certain leftist subcultures, and whether it be like anarchists or communists or leftists broadly, and it's not just on the left, but there's often this implicit assumption that bravery towards like literally insurmountable conflict in the name of good ideas is like pure and good and that deviation from it is contemptible specifically yeah. contemptibly timid well yeah because like sometimes it is really good when like the odds seem insurmountable and this is like you know the lesson of so many stories that we tell ourselves and tell each other it's understandable that people think like this it's true that sometimes when something seems insurmountable, it's good to just just go into it and try it anyway. And you didn't run from your problem. You tackled it. And hey, guess what? You were stronger than you thought and you accomplished something. But I do think that it gets applied in a sort of universal principle way that is kind of poisoned by media and fiction and in these real world scenarios where the stakes are actually life and death or like the life and death of political movements trajectory of history stuff it's always good to just try and be a hero and be this brave little individualist duckling and stand up against the who's the brave little duckling is that a thing? brave little toaster yeah i think i mixed brave little toaster with ugly, ugly duck. duckling <laughs> You're a brave little duckling standing up against uh, whatever ducklings have to stand up against that you can just overcome it all because you're Harry Potter, you're Frodo, Elsa from Frozen, and like you can just do it all. Sure, there's going to be a cinematic low point, but you bounce back after that. It's how <laughs> reality works. Yeah, and it's like not always the case. And, but, and also sometimes running away, fleeing, hiding, not participating is a kind of active good for historical movements for the revolution like the american war in vietnam and people who were draft dodgers and ran from the government and hid from the government or fled the country that was an unjust war and the people who refused to participate and run and hid from the government were part of something bigger than themselves like a revolutionary in a sense like anti-war movement like mm. a the citizens standing up against the government and well then over in vietnam the Viet Cong, rather than being like here we are we're gonna fight you mano a mano they hid really well and then attacked suddenly from hiding and it was a better strategy because they were outpowered they did so much running and hiding that they defeated the biggest military superpower on earth that's part of the legacy of running and hiding right there. Yeah. The, on like, both sides of the yeah, sea. Yeah, the, the running and hiding Viet Cong members and the running and hiding draft dodgers in America, you know, without even knowing that they were kind of working in concert with each other in this way. All the revolutionary power of running and hiding. <laughs> Just, but no, the running and hiding that wasn't revolutionary was the people who actually made the political decision to go to war when they ran and hide from fighting on the front lines themselves. That was a non-revolutionary running and hiding. See, running and hiding is a neutral tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely not a priori saying it's always good. In all circumstances, one must run and hide. Some people are extremists about it. Not me. You know, I'm open to other opinions. Thanks so much for picking me up, man. Yeah, I saw you standing there on the side of the road. I thought, hey, I got two seats in this big rig. Maybe I could take them for a spell. It's usually the truckers who do folks in their car just too nervous sometimes. Yeah, I suppose if there was a problem, I'd have to kick you out of my rig. Or if you started a problem, I'd have to try to run away, like jump out of the car and run. Yeah, 
Yeah, I guess I would be running away in a sense, too. Running, driving, it's all fleeing in the end. That's the word, fleeing, yeah. I used to teach a course on fleeing. Oh, back really? Back before that job was automated. Yeah, it's something, honestly, I have a lot of trouble with. I habitually stand my ground. Well, you know, you seem like a quick learner. I still remember the basics. Do you want to go through some tips for running away? For free? I'd be a fool to pass that up. Well, skill sharing like this, friend, benefits the whole of society. Number one thing, now this is most important, make sure you're wearing comfortable footwear. Now, what are you wearing right now? Vans, skate oh, sneakers. Yeah, flat bottoms. Yeah, yeah, not the best for fleeing. No, yeah, you got I a guess skateboard. Not. I did, but I traded it. Now, this is another tip that we always use. You want to wait until the right moment to flee. Now, fleeing, now, especially if you've got an attacker or something like that, you want to catch them off guard with the fleeing. Mm -hmm. If you go too soon, they might catch you. If you go too late, they might catch it. I guess you would just wait for circumstances to be optimal. Yeah, and if you're being chased, pay attention. What's the pace behind them? If they're lagging, that's when you want to push yourself. A little extra burst of speed It's going to give you that gap you need to get out of there. Now, I've been fleeing for 30, 40 years. You know, they're going to shout things like coward at you if you run away. These bastards, they always say, coward, Yeah. weak. That's what the voice inside my head says sounds like my dad when you're running you're not a coward you're a revolutionary tell your dad that there's nothing more revolutionary than running away when the time is right in comfortable footwear okay uh running is revolutionary makes sense yeah it's just hard to running is revolutionary so break the sight line get something between you and your chasers dart to the right turn around a corner get behind a big truck and if possible you always want to throw things in their path like a log mailbox depending on where you are yeah whatever's handy and that's this why you're aware of your surroundings step two yeah that's some great advice absolutely hey do you like radio because often out on the road i'll listen for a spell sure yeah i always appreciate sound Especially human-prepared sound. Sometimes na natural sounds as well, but... I got the XM, so I should be able to find something prepared. Well, all radio is usually prepared, otherwise it's just static. I guess you could set up a microphone in a public place and broadcast some unprepared sound. And even then, like, you have to set up a mic, you have to then take those files and broadcast them, and yeah, it's a whole process of preparation and execution. Now that is food for thought. Anyway, please turn the radio on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you in my rig, even just for a spell. Can I tell you about one of my favorite runners and hiders, someone who run and hid in a very revolutionary way? Well, a great American hero, actually. An American running and hiding hero? One of the greatest heroes in American history, in my opinion. Also a prominent runner and hider. You have my attention because <laughs> I'm a big running and hiding revolutionary fan right now. Her name is Harriet Tubman. She was a slave. She became associated with the Underground Railroad, a series of safe houses and networks of trusted people that stretched from the American South to the North and up into Canada, a national network of running and hiding that saved countless people from lives of bondage and toil. And Harriet Tubman attempted to escape slavery in 1849 with her brothers. So they were already on the run. She was running and hiding with them. And then they kind of acted like cowards and said, no, let's not run. Let's go back. Let's not hide. And they brought her back with them. Kind of tragic. But she didn't take that lying down. A few years later, she escapes again by herself, journeys 90 miles on foot to Pennsylvania. So she ran on foot. I mean, probably walked a lot of it, let's be honest. <laughs> 90 <laughs> miles to Pennsylvania. Sometimes walking a lot can be part of running and hiding. And then when she gets to Pennsylvania, she's run, she's hid successfully, she's in the free north. But what does she decide to do? Spend the next decade working to help other people run and hide from slavery. She made 13 expeditions back to the south, led over 300 people to Northern America, to Canada, or what at the time was called British North America, and was just a huge leader of the Underground Railroad. And then when the Civil War fought, she did a bunch of other great stuff that didn't involve running and hiding, but she knew when to run and when to hide. And for over a decade, she helped people run and hide, over 300 people. They nicknamed her Moses. Like Moses, who fled from the Egyptians, she, uh, she helped set her people free. It's a dope running and hiding story. The thing I really like about that story is that it shows 
just very clearly how sometimes not running and hiding is the cowardly thing to do, like how her brothers prevented them from being successful the first time. And then she actually ended up helping them run and hide and escape later. And also, I like that it's not just a story about someone running and hiding successfully themselves, but creating like a network of running and hiding. When you scale up the running and hiding beyond the personal towards the collective, it becomes really profound. It's an exceptional person. Another great runner and hider from history, a revolutionary runner and hider, is the Métis revolutionary Louis Riel, who is sort of a Canadian icon, especially in Manitoba, where I'm from. This elementary school I went to was in the Louis Riel school division. Mm. He was a Métis leader who resisted colonial government and as part of this political group, which was at one point named the Canada Party. The Métis people were mixed race, French, and indigenous. And there was a warrant out for his arrest because he had been part of a group that was planning insurrection. So he was like in exile or like hiding. But he actually ran for member of parliament multiple times from exile (laughs) and won could he vote on things when he was in no, exile? Yeah, no, he he couldn't. So like he didn't actually sit in parliament, right. but he was elected to MP more than once. And in order to officially become an MP, he had to like sign a document at the parliament at which he went there in disguise <laughs> and managed to sign this thing he legally needed to sign to be a member of parliament and then ran and hit again. Uh, <laughs> And then I I think what happened was Parliament voted to kick him out of Parliament because he was a fugitive and there was like a bounty out for his arrest and there's a chance he'd be like assassinated and stuff. In the end, he was hung. But after being kicked out of Parliament, he went, came back, did the paperwork to run again and ran away and won again. (laughs) So that's some real running running and hiding. That's like next level because the disguises is, is like hiding in plain sight. That's a very advanced level of hiding like usually you think of hiding you know dark enclosed space like or at least just like out of sight somewhere like not easily visible like you think about another famous hider Anne frank famously she and her family hid in the attic of one of his work acquaintances i think or something but it was like this hidden door behind a bookcase and like a secret floor of the house they all lived up there for years she wrote one of the most enduring pieces of literature and history And that's kind of what you tend to think about with hiding, like being in some Mm -hmm. enclosed space like that. But yeah, Louis Riel. Putting on a mustache and be like, I'm Shmooly Riel. Uh, (laughs) May I see Louis Riel's important paperwork to sign? (laughs) Lenin, Vladimir Lenin also did some disguising himself during the Russian Revolution. Like he would, to not be recognized, put on a wig and like a big coat. Yeah, that's, I like disguises as part of the revolutionary toolkit, you know, as you need. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, definitely. Oh, and especially, yeah, now with like face recognition technology and CCTV and some of the scary possibilities there, disguising yourself could be an invaluable tool. Like if someone's worked on a movie and they can make you like a fake nose or like, change the shape of your face enough that you wouldn't be recognized by facial recognition uh-huh, that, yeah. that could be huge that guess, could that could win a revolution that having, kind of hiding having sock accounts is kind of like a, right. a form of yeah. running and hiding uh, yeah, or a yeah. form of hiding hiding definitely but, yeah which is under the larger banner of running and hiding which right. is a revolutionary <laughs> toolkit yeah hiding is a subset of the larger Running and hiding. Lenin also hid, right? He ran and hid. Yeah, he was out of Russia from 1905 to 1917, I think. Let me. Yeah, there was an original revolution attempt in 1905, and then there was a czarist crackdown, and Lenin fled the country and didn't come back until after the February Revolution in 1917. He came back just before the Bolsheviks took power. You know, another group good at running and hiding is the... Kurdish resistance in Rojava. There's oh, yeah, actually good runners and hiders. Yeah, there's been a prolonged conflict in Turkey over the last decades between the revolutionary feminist socialists and the Turkish state. And like Ashlan, the leader of the YPG, YPJ, he was on the run hiding from the Turkish state for a long time. And there's actually like a Kurdish phrase that's like the Kurds only friend is the mountains which refers to how they can really effectively go hide in those mountains and run away. And it's part of what makes them so powerful. It's part of their mythology, the mountains, hiding in the mountains. Yeah. That's fantastic. We now return to Sweetie Trek. 
Captain's Log, Sweetie Date 16.2. I've been thinking about testing out some new calming teas on myself. Come in. Sir, I have updates from Eldron Krogman 8. The Eldron look just like you or I, except they've got some weird different ridges on their face. Anything like your ridges? No, sir. These are the ridges from my species, which is a very reasonable species. Do they have one weird thing? A lot of species have one weird thing. You're reasonable, as you mentioned. Yes, sir. Their one weird thing is they refuse to run and hide under any circumstances. They believe in always staying and fighting. No matter what? It becomes a particular problem when the Krogman come, sir. Oh, so that's why it's called Eldron Krogmanade, because there's two species, Eldron and the Krogmans. Okay, so tell me about the Krogmans. What kind of ridges do they have? No, sir. The Krogman are more of a beast species, not unlike a dinosaur with huge spikes. Oh, yikes. It also Ooh. squirts ink. Are they an intelligent species? or No, sir. They're a barbaric species, and they come and eat Eldron on mass. The Eldron have never successfully stood up to the hard outer shell of the Krogman. Every time I visit a new species, their one weird thing is causing a moral quandary. According to our sensors, a large batch of Krogman is headed towards the main Eldron city. Oh no. We tried to warn them. They said they were going to stay and fight. Of course, yeah, it's their one weird thing. And now I'm left with the difficult moral decision of like, you know, the ship could easily vaporize the Krogman, but is that right to do? <sighs> We're not supposed to interfere with them in that way. I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I'd really like to be a hero here. You seem like a reasonable guy. I thought of one paradox of reason that might be able to liberate them from their rigid chains. Excited to hear it. Let me get this chalkboard. I'm just going to try out this new kind of tea so I stay calm. Now, if one assumes that it's reasonable to be brave and courageous and stay and fight and cowardly to run away and hide, then they will certainly perish. But if they can be convinced to stand up to the superstitions and dogmas of their society, and that the truly cowardly thing is to submit to the religious fairy tales of their ancestors, then perhaps they have a fighting shot. Brilliant. We're going to have to find the most persuasive person on their planet, bring them up here, convince them, and then they will convince their species, and we might get them out of that city in time. Do you have any questions? My only question, sir, is can I get a hit of some of that sweet, cooling tea? I'm getting quite agitated worrying about the fate of the Eldron. And this isn't your standard Blenarino cooling tea. A little dash of smorgroot from the planet Chuglot. Fascinating bouquet. If I may say so, sir, it sounds like it stands to reason that I will enjoy this tea. One last thing, sir. One of our youngest ensigns has been lost from the away team. He's been out of contact for several days, and no one knows where he's went. See if they can locate him. Ensign or captain, no matter what color shirt we wear, we're important, and I care about us. So let's get on that. Oh, my comm badge is going off. Yeah, I guess I didn't tell the ship. It's been a whirlwind romance these past three days. Me and an Eldranian, who would have thought, fall in love. Eight days in paradise. And those beautiful ridges you have. Oh, stop. It's just striking. Something's been bothering me. Do you mind if I get communicative about this? That's great. Let's jump in. In an Eldron culture, it's a typical thing to do around the fifth day of courtship to go and buy matching tombstones. What? Matching tombstones? Usually around the fifth or sixth day of courtship if one is playing hard to get. Well, it's now been eight days. It's a little more than hard to get. I'm wondering if you've got cold feet. Man, and I thought your species weird thing was just the not running and hiding thing. No, sorry, our species, we generally wait until death is imminent. So then what, if you break up, do you just toss the old tombstones? Can you reuse tombstones? It's probably tacky. We keep that sort of stuff private. It's oh, not okay. a big I don't parade to, every time I a don't relationship to, ends and you need to find something to do with your old tombstone. Right. If I'm going to live on Eldron Krogmanate, I'm going to live on Eldron Krogmanate. Let's go get tombstones together. I want those ridges next to me in this life and the next. I really appreciate that you appreciate my ridges, but Mm -hmm. when you make my ridges the subject of your every comment, it makes me feel flattened to my ridges. Message received. That's my fixation, and I don't need to rub it in your face all the time. Just know that, well, you already know. I don't need to say it again. Right? That's the whole problem. And honestly, I'm going to freak that smooth... Oh my god, it's a Krogman. Let's stay and fight it. How about we run? I think we should run and hide right now. Run run and... If I'm going to bend on this tombstone thing, why don't you bend on the running and hiding thing just this once? All right. 
Let's run and hide. Yeah, it's a great idea. There's a cave over there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that felt good, doesn't it? To feel the run, it gets your heart beating. Running's good for your health, too. That's, that's something else. Uh, How you feeling? An Eldron culture. When an Eldron runs away from a Krogman, we kill ourselves. But no, I mean, we were going to go get tombstones together. You can't kill yourself. <laughs> My love. My love! It's wrong of me to no. run and hide. Oh, we had such a life ahead of us. No, oh, it wasn't enough time. He's dead. <laughs> Damn dogmatic culture. If only it could change. Captain's Log, Sweetie Date 16.4. It's moments like this when one is so proud to be a captain. I could tell that Gretchen really liked Donald, and so I reassigned Donald to the morning shift. What do I know? A few days later, Gretchen's in here asking me for advice. Oh, he only asked me out on a date four days from now instead of tonight. Does that mean he doesn't like me? And I was like, no, no, that means he does like you. But what I didn't tell her, because it would have been breaking Donald's confidence, is that Donald had also come to see me worried that Gretchen didn't like him. It's so cute. Sometimes I love being the captain on the ship. Sir, I come bearing news from Eldron Krogman 8. Ah, uh, yes, my other project. Our plan went off without a hitch. We convinced the most persuasive of the Eldron to deliver a fiery speech calling the true cowardice to submit to their bravery. And the Krogman, have they reached the city? Yes, but by then the Eldron had already fleed and hidden in the caves. Oh, fantastic. They've leveled up as a species. They've evolved. There this was another one problem. Success. Oh. The Eldron were confused by the persuasive speech, but they hadn't fully committed to the ideas. In an Eldron culture, when one runs away, that brings the Eldron such an intense shame, all of the Eldron that were going to be killed by the Krogman committed a mass suicide in the cave in front of many of your officers. Wait, all of them? All of them. Just Now I'm just picturing all, all my crewmen and what was certainly pools of blood. An ensign remarked that it tasted of tin to be in the cave because there was so much airborne Eldron blood. They also emphasized the rank smell of death. Oh no, yeah, did the Eldrons all disembowel themselves like the ensigns? So I said to him, like, did they all cut open their intestines, spilling both blood, guts, and feces in front of our crewmen? And the super reasonable guy was like, unfortunately, yes, sir. They all got therapy, obviously, but like half of them asked to transfer. The whole cute little date thing I was setting up completely fell apart over this. Breaking the Prime Directive, it was the wrong choice for me, and it's going to be the wrong choice for you. So, permission denied. So you're saying I can't go back to Gresnik 6 and save those people? Permission denied. Sorry, Captain. Maybe I can learn permission, from your mistakes permission, and do better Captain, than you did? Just because you messed up. Your permission up. is denied. This is final. And there will be consequences if you do not obey me. Dismiss. <sighs> Maybe he does have a point. Maybe I'm not supposed to be the hero for the people of Gresnik 6. Maybe it's not my place to intervene, but then again, maybe... Captain to the helm? Yes, sir. Turn this ship around. We're heading back to Gresnik 6. Do you mean it, sir? We're going to save those people. Yes, yes! It's the right thing to do. You're right! Yeah, yes, yeah. Hey, everyone, yes. you hear what the captain said? We're going to be heroes! Heroes, 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 heroes. What are the reasons to pick a fight that you can't win? There's some legit reasons to pick a fight you can't win. Sure, yeah. If you were on a playground, say, and someone's getting bullied by like five people and you know that you couldn't win the fight either, you might pick the fight hoping the teacher will intervene or that you might even give a moment for the other person to escape. You kind of sacrifice yourself for someone else. That could be a reason to pick a fight you can't win. Sacrifice yourself for someone else. Stall for time. To make a point. Yeah, to, martyrdom kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's also probably worth mentioning that like you can't usually tell whether or not you can win a fight ahead of time. Even if you're in a situation where you're dealing with someone who seems a lot more powerful than you in a lot of ways, say like the U.S. military and your Vietnamese resistance fighters. Right. The general unpredictability of the unfolding 
of history and the way that forces interact with each other being unpredictable. Maybe that's one of the reasons that it's worth, in some cases, picking a fight that you can't win. Because you might look and say, well, they massively outpower me, but this is also a dice roll, and like maybe we'll get snake eyes this time. Yeah, maybe you're Luke with the Death Star and you blow it up. Maybe you're Harry Potter. Maybe you're Elsa from Frozen. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why we have stories like that, because that is true a lot of the time, that you can take on more than you think. And the times that you try to take on more than you can and you lose, they don't become canonical mythology. Yeah, they don't. And sometimes they crush you forever and you're gone. <laughs> like, like for real, it's like you have a kind of natural tendency to not want to do that, to run. And do people really need help? Do people need to be told to run and hide when we're actually like generally pretty good at it? Like, I think that's why the focus is so much in the other direction. Yeah, people don't need to receive <laughs> run and hide as advice. Like, they're good on it. Yeah, it just, <laughs> we naturally do it. Like, the thing that really captured my mind about it is because we have, maybe it's a cultural thing or it has to do with like the mythological stuff we're talking about, but where conflict is kind of like, elevated the conflict is treated as a good thing in itself and like even our role models of peace are framed in terms of their conflict like smedley butler anti-war advocate you know right. war is a racket guy what makes him a wonderful peace advocate is his conflict against war what makes martin luther king jr a peace advocate is his conflict against war you yeah know? if you're talking about his peaceful moments he's like he spent sunday at home in his favorite chair read a book <laughs> you know it's like it's it's, it's not, great it's wonderful that's like a good sunday it might not make the biopic <laughs> yeah like conflict is part of storytelling yes but an absence of conflict is part of actual life and like usually the best parts of life like the parts where you feel most at peace like just obviously when you're not in conflict so yeah and i think culturally we kind of imply or work within the framing that conflict is inherently good that those who rise to conflict should be elevated that people who shirk away from conflict are contemptibly timid and finding different revolutionaries that hid at different times and stuff like that i love it because it's flipping that on its head and saying something that's obvious that people still wouldn't say like the fact that people yeah. run and hide naturally is part of what makes us so tantalizing <laughs> is because it's like, yeah, obviously you run and hide. Like if someone's trying to shoot you, you run and hide. You're not like, I am now the hero who fights the guy with a gun with his bare hands against all odds. Like that's storytelling. That's yeah, that mythology. Would be a great, that would be a great scene in a movie. If you, like, yeah, you, if you, you succeed, absolutely. That's incredible. But know what? It was a better idea running and hiding. <laughs> and it's kind of a machismo masculinist patriarchal thing as well like real men will stand and fight and mm -hmm. if not then you're cowardly like a woman and that's bad i think part of the reason for the dominance of that narrative is not just that we need encouragement to do things like that sometimes because it's hard but there's a kind of like bravado and being more concerned with looking cowardly or looking weak than being concerned with what is the correct tactical thing to do in this moment yeah I don't know, it's a weird kind of male vanity thing i've tried to engage people on that subject too of like how the sort of violent ideation can sometimes dovetail into toxic masculinity when people like sneeringly would call someone liberal for their absence of violent ideation yeah liberals are cowards that's like one of the definitions of colloquial liberal in left circles like oh you displayed cowardice that makes you a liberal which is also in interesting to like look back through the history of radical political movements and their problems with misogyny and rape culture and right and yeah. it's not to say that women don't participate in conflict or are unable to be violent or something like essentialist like that, but that within patriarchal gender norms, there's an expectation of men to reach the level of rapturous violence and conflict for their honor and all that stuff. And there's mm -hmm. not that expectation upon women. And that when men don't meet that level, the frame of the insult is that they've like lost their man card. They've got the, they've got a drop of femininity in them and therefore they're impure men and mm -hmm. that they're, yeah. they're, they're like women for their lack of violence. I think that's definitely a factor when you're talking about this sort of like conflict ideation within left circles.
I guess ultimately, this is a big question for all of us that desire to see big changes in our lifetime for the well-being of people is what is the shortest best path to achieve that future and pull from the world of potentiality all of the different various outcomes and worlds that we can participate in creating each day and somehow reach into the future with the good one, the utopian one, the one where we have a global library system when we've abolished private property and we live according to the principle of usufruct in harmony with ecosystems using design science to amplify the patterns of nature for the benefit of humankind and we can travel to the stars responsibly and ethically. How we do that, I guess one possibility is sort of an assumed possibility when you look at the history of the world in a lot of ways is that you got to play like chess with guns. There's like a real politique. There's going to be different nation states, different orgs that fight it out with guns and they point weapons at each other and they both point world destroying bombs at each other at the same time to make sure that no one uses world destroying bombs. This weird chess with guns experiment where at the end someone wins. And it's the good guys. Like, that's one theory. But maybe there's other ways. Maybe that takes you further away from the good society, even just temporarily. Like, no one says wartime is fun. Maybe there's a big list of incomprehensibly different ways to transition from one society to the next. And maybe we too often think in terms of war and militarism because that's the culture we live in now. It is an interesting idea that there's one way to take power and change the way a country's being run, a state is being run. One thing, it's these wars, it's this chess with guns. You can only make certain moves if you're pawns, you can go two spaces forward. If you're horse, you move in this L shape, et cetera, et cetera. There's rules to the game. It's all very specific in one path. And the thing you just said, that there's an incomprehensibly large number of different ways to move from one society to another, it just really sparked with the chess metaphor for me and the like limitations of playing their game, so to speak, or like playing this game that's been laid out by history and assuming that it has to be that way, that you can only make these certain specific moves, that we are playing this game. It's chess with guns, and that's just how it is. That's just the reality. And you're saying, well, maybe we can just make moves that aren't in the rule book. Maybe we can do other things. We can just start playing a different game. I mean, maybe winning the chess with guns doesn't even necessarily make you win history. Maybe you win chess at guns, and then you just have an immediate like internal revolution. So you spend all this time conquering the whole planet. You've got all this mutually assured destruction threats. You've got all these nuclear warheads pointed directly at each other. You've got all these fucking subversive games trying to influence each other's democratic systems and having a shadow war of all against all, getting client states, building power against each other. And finally, your empire successfully defeats the other empire the wrong empire the one with the bad values the one that needed to be destroyed and was your enemy for since time immemorial and then all of a sudden like clockwork unrest starts bubbling up across your enormous empire and all of a sudden seemingly overnight within a month your government uh, has lost its power over the people and in a few short years the structure of the society that conquered the entire earth which started off so beautifully utopian and perfect despite the compromises of war which were ample conquered the whole planet through the game of chess with guns and successfully did the right military maneuvers and successfully got the whole motherfucker and then in a few short years there's a a revolution from inside and you're you're back to some sort of weird feudal <laughs> feudal reactionary dictatorship that you and all the good people helped to create the context of history might get weird yeah i mean if history is any guide to how future history will turn out it definitely gets weird whenever you look deep into any historical event you find out it gets pretty fucking weird sometimes yeah it might get weird it's probably will probably will get weird no, it's just going to be all normal from here on out. It's just like 2020, that year is the first normal year, and it's all normal from there. End of history. We now go to the year 2119, to the mountains, 
New Usufruct, built from those running and hiding from invasion of the old Usufruct, is a successful and bustling library society in the mountains. Jeremy, Thomas. it's so nice to run into you. Hey, what are you doing here? Just pondering this utopian, idyllic society we live yeah. in. I guess our common sense is sort of built on our experience of this library-dense, usufruct-based society named usufruct. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, like the mythology of the recent past of the original usufruct and its destruction is deeply ingrained in us as well, but it's not experiential to us. It's more like what we were taught in schools when we were kids and we were like wanted to go outside and play and they're like you need to learn this history about old Usufruct and we're, we're like, like yeah, yeah whatever okay, yeah, yeah, running and hiding sure is great uh, I gotta admit there was a brief period when I was a teenager they'd been hammering this run and hide stuff in my head so much I'm like maybe I'll stay and fight you know I didn't realize the wisdom of it one of the major key events in my life was when I, I started running from a bully and I just realized that it was also a really good workout and I was like hey I'm away from the bully and this is a great workout Maybe these adults are onto something. Mm -hmm. And I think your sculpted calves speak for themselves. Oh, stop. Oh, stop. Do you want to stop in quickly at the ice cream library? If you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Oh, there used to be such a nice bike library just around the corner there, but I think they moved it across town. Best bike librarians. Also, great teachers of how to do basic maintenance. It really helped me a lot that they were willing to share those skills with me. I owe those librarians my life. You know my story with the bike accident. I don't have to go into details. But, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that speaks for itself. I'm eating the most delicious ice cream that's ever existed in human history, and it's healthy too. Yeah, I mean, outside of this guarded mountain fortress, ice cream will cause you health problems to eat. And they need the ice cream more than anyone because they're being traumatized all the time by all the war. Well, part of the problem there is that they don't run and hide enough. Like, yeah, that's the thing out definitely. there. Is they're like, oh, I can't run and hide. And yeah, it's like, you have to stand and fight, and that's brave and good or something. <laughs> it's crazy. Hey, do you want to take some dogs out of this dog library? Like, take them for a walk, pet them, have the dog with us for as long or as little as we'd like. Sure, yeah. It's good for the dog, and it's fun for us. <sighs> I don't know. Thinking about the outside world, I mean, yeah, it's sometimes sad. it gets me down too. Do you think there's any hope for them? The founders of our city once said that one day in the future, all of humanity will run and they will hide, and then they will know peace. And obviously, we can't predict the future, but I, I choose to believe that. Meanwhile, in the tallest tower of the central library, a group of influential archivists, librarians scientists and philosophers have gathered in a wartime posture to talk about new Yusufruk's covert cold conflict against the entirety of the outside world. Head librarian, good to see you. It's good to see you as well, head scientist. Have there been any more reports from our network of spies? Any news? Absolutely. We've got networks set up of archivists at both the Cascadian Republic and Texas Shipping and Trade Co. that are feeding us live data from their systems. So we've got the combined data of the two empires. They're hiding in plain sight and they're running away with everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's normal to me that there's, you know, multiple layers of data processing. This is a data society. I just meant, is there any crucial news, any kind of headline stuff? Well, one thing I'm not sure if you're aware of is that Operation Railroad is successfully helping tens of thousands of people run and hide every day from the fallen outside world into New Usufruct. You know, those cool tunnel building machines we have that burrow in and out of cities. I oversaw that whole project. Again, you're just kind of giving me these broad overviews of stuff happening in society. And good, it's good to always make sure everyone's on the same page for sure. But any news? Our newest data projections show both of these empires are over leveraged. Oh. Our compromises in their data systems has given us crucial internal information that we can reliably predict a key crisis point from which we can act decisively as a society and take over this continent once and for all for the life cult, for new usufruct. You know, the philosophers who founded new usufruct said that in the end, running and hiding would win the day. And, you know, some people didn't believe them. Some people in old Yusufruk stood and they fought and they died. And then some of them were 
killed in an unfortunate incident afterwards. The password incident, yes. It's one of the emotional scars on the mythology of our society. What 50 years ago seemed like permanent, immovable fixtures of our world. Texas shipping and trade and the new Cascadian Free Republic fighting each other for decades, training themselves in conflict, in chess with guns. And now we see where that ideology has brought them and where our ideology of running, hiding, collecting data has brought us. It's brought us to the brink of victory. Two people are playing chess. They're so focused on the other team, the black pieces, the white pieces. They don't even think that there might be some gold pieces hiding under the board. Doing complex data analysis based on their own systems to find when they're both mutually weak at the same time. Yeah, from that le- prolonged learning conflict. strategies that both sides are employing, the types of moves they make in various types of situations, watching them fight battle over battle again and again, just hiding underneath the board, collecting data, all the while the two opponents getting weaker and weaker, breaking each other down their own violent ideologies collapsing in on themselves and at the perfect moment at this perfect moment the hidden pieces under the board come out and checkmate checkmate the third player you didn't even know was there just won the game that's real chess why didn't you know they were there because they were hiding they ran and they hid yeah running first and then hiding as the end point of the running well, let's not celebrate too early. Let's There's a lot, of, a lot of work to do. In the <laughs> yeah, next let's seven do the days. actual work, guys. <laughs> Just, <laughs> we're all excited, but like, let's do it, okay? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> Over the course of the next seven days, the people of New Usufruct came together like never before in their history. People were working 13 hour workdays. Some people weren't even getting enough sleep. They got sleep deprivation and they started to project malintent onto some of the other people. And it was a crazy time, a crazy seven days. I don't want to give a hint that everything went off without a hitch. By our best historical records, somewhere between 458 and 483 bullets were fired and there were at least 243 casualties. And we don't take that lightly. Every one of this 243 people had families, had friends, had hopes and dreams for the future. They experienced happiness, sadness, pain, anger, delight, confusion, laughter, just like everyone else did. And that was ended by us and our mission. I say us because even as the narrator, I feel a part of this history. I'm narrating this from the future for some project, obviously, but in society, we talk about the past as us because we know that history echoes even into the future and that's just kind of how we talk about things in the far far future i'm actually from 10,000 years past this event you know from the sensibilities of people in the pre-usufructian society everything past that point was utopia forever but there were new horizons to shoot for there was conflicts still there was change and growth hurt and realizations and happiness and society went to the stars and met other societies many new frontiers of discovery and integration of different peoples from all over the galaxy until finally after 10,000 years of world peace on earth there became a new galactic peace where all of the people on all of the planets of the galaxy came together renamed the galaxy usufruct one with the knowledge that there are many other galaxies out there in the universe and one day we may travel to them and once we reach those other galaxies we will share with them the blessings of usufruct the blessings of our philosophy and galaxy by galaxy we will spread this ideology across the entire known universe until there are no more resistors against the perfect philosophy that we've developed for one and for all across time and space forever unending hail usufruct and death to all resistance all will be assimilated the end Seriously wrong. 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 W
got systemic trouble Time to break out of your bubble and be wrong Next time on Seriously Wrong The last living revolutionary Is on his deathbed What does he have to say? Grandpa, can I get you something to drink While you await the inevitable beyond? Yes, get me some of that uh, cooling tea Grandpa's getting a little worked up. Okay, computer, Blennerino cooling tea, please. Grandpa, did you know that the people who developed this recipe actually took it from a 2019 podcast called Seriously Wrong? Yes, that was such a good sketch. I remember that. (laughs) I wish that I'd been alive when they existed so I could have donated to their Patreon. You're preaching to the choir, right? It sounded like a really good deal for all those bonus episodes. Used to listen to that during the revolution. The one that you're the last surviving participant in? Yeah, I was hiding in plain sight. I was in the data department working for the uh, ethno-nationalist outfit. Mm. You can hide so good that you can stand in front of someone's face and they don't even know you're hiding. That's amazing. I always had to make jokes about how I was Irish. They'd laugh and they'd tell me more and trust my decisions. So I'd just be like, oh, I'm Irish. And then they just all crack up. You know, there's a Kenyan guy and a Hindu guy and uh, everyone was super racist all the time. But they just acted like it didn't matter. That sounds painful. I bet they were carrying a lot of pain and hatred. Anyway, I, I sabotaged so much of their operation over there. But Grandpa, you destroyed data? War is hell. War is hell. We maintain the data for ourselves, but so we had our pamphleteers connecting people to the underground library to right? get them out of the whole fucked up situation over there, get them over to the utopian one. So we had to fudge that out. Unfortunately, that violence against the pureness of data was historically necessary. I don't know about that. I think there might have been a way to do it without, but I'm, I wo- just, I'm I, just a boy. Honestly, I welcome that kind of feedback, but uh, as far as what we did, that worked, and I'm not going to say it was perfect. To be honest, I am on my deathbed. I'm the last surviving war hero of a revolutionary event that brought about what sort of utopian around here. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just interesting that you're choosing this time to... Oh, it just came up. Dragon Grandpa across the coals. Oh, it just came up You never up brought this up before. I'm I... just about to die. You drop this on me. I'm sorry, Grandpa. I don't mean to try to provoke people. I, maybe subconsciously I do, but... I don't know. We still have issues, even in the utopian future. And we're all replicating echoes of historical primordial violence, yeah. obviously. Trauma bounces off people through the halls of history. Hopefully one day the echoes die out. Well, they die out every day, grandson. Whenever we do kind acts, whenever we treat other human beings with respect, we create new echoes, louder echoes that drown out the trauma and pain of history and what we've inherited, which isn't our fault. It's not your fault, but goddamn, you can make a big difference while you're here, grandson. I saw it myself. I was there, goddammit. Wow. After I figure out my weird mind game thing, I'm definitely going to work on new horizons of making society better. Are you a runner or are you a hider? I think I'm a runner. I'm going to sculpt these calves like a sculpture of stone. That's my thick-calved grandson. You run out there. Run, run, run. My little boy. I will, Grandpa. Be running for you. I'm going to be hiding from this world. Come soon. Do you feel the beckoning of the great beyond, Grandpa? Yes. It draws me closer every day, my boy. How close do you think you are now? Close. Oh my god. Very close. The sounds of your machines are changing. They're becoming more urgent and rapid. It calls for me, boy. It calls. Grandpa. It calls. Grandpa. Ah, He's dead. (laughs) That crying boy was so sad at the passing of his grandfather that he became the best crier in history. He was put in all the record books as the biggest baby who cried the most, which is cool and desirable in that culture. Emotions are an important part of the fullness of human experience. And when someone exceeds at being angry, at being sad, at laughing, at experiencing joy, damned right they deserve a prize. They're gods among us. They get to live in a special house on government land. 
They have veto power over military legislation. And these emotive feelers are the most important people in our society. That's normal. And that announcer became so passionate about his announcement that he kind of lost his cool and had to take a break, go to the washroom for a few minutes, put himself together a little bit. A bunch of his co-workers came out and said, hey, it's no problem. We have all the time in the world to record these announcements. What's going on with you? He was having issues in his life, just relational issues, things with his family, his girlfriend, his work, his career, and the stress was getting to him. And he needed someone just to listen to his problems, and he needed to articulate it just as importantly. After he did that, he was able to come back into the booth and give a second take of that announcement, which was more measured, and which the company did end up using in their product. The performance of that last announcer was so inspiring and reasonable that a multinational conglomerate reached out to that announcer and had him work for them in expressing their key messages in the most rational and reasonable way that everyone would totally be like, yeah, that's true. Because of that last segment, that announcer became the most successful announcer in the entire history of that classic announcer voice started there because it's just a little bit of trivia a little bit of interesting thing about that last announcement so yeah he he's number one <laughs> do you think announcing will be a big profession in the utopian future <laughs> they're gonna lead a lot of people to announce all the great things that are going on <laughs> i got a new job announce i got a job announcing oh that's great that's a nice stable high income job you, it's important too to you announce should get all the an great announcement stuff. on the stream about your new gig at announcing you know, social media has more announcing than regular conversation definitely because you put you announce things you don't say things to someone in a context you it's just broad announcements one after the other so check out my list of announcements I announce this, I announce this, I announce this. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, that's, that's all she wrote. It's the end.